Nobody does it better. WWDB Philadelphia. The talk station. WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia and WPEN HD2 Burlington, Philadelphia. The following programming is sponsored by Six Feet Over Under Productions. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohn, powered by Eli Eighty Eight Twenty Five. How am I supposed to read the intro if you're laughing already? I'm so glad you're back on the show that I can't even tell people that we're thrilled to join them on the radio go, go on Eight Sixty and Ninety Seven Five HD Two, part of the Beasley Media Group. All right, you screwed it all up. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I swear, I just heard a public service announcement that sounds like it was done in the 60s. And all so I'm thinking is the next commercial is going to be for Prism. I don't have my Prism shirt on today, but you know yeah, that, you I'm, know a, you you know that I'm a fan. No, I have my Rutgers yeah, sweatshirt I, I, on after that loss already today. I've, yeah, but yesterday, congratulations. Rutgers beat Michigan. Okay, now tell me how Michigan sucks this year and it's not really a good win. Go ahead, get it out. Get it's, it out. Justify the win. loss. Michigan sucks and it was a good win for you. Because we'll it, is, it is very likely Rutgers is going to be in the tournament and Michigan's going to be in the NIT. I actually, which I wasn't sure was still around, by the way. So I hope Rutgers makes the tournament. I was up there Sunday night to cover the game. I was texting oh. you from there. Um, I heard a new chant, Jeff. Yeah, well, maybe you shouldn't start <laughs> fires in the building. As if the, the board up on the other side may want to get the dump button ready. No, I promise I won't say it. Um, the speaker caught on fire during the game where there was smoke coming out of it, and they cut the wire, and the student section came up with an FU speaker section chant, uh, which I hadn't heard at a basketball game before. But, I, look, I'm hoping Rutgers makes the tourney. This is a fun time of year when your team's in it. I know you're not watching anymore. Yeah, I'll watch. watch. I will still watch, yeah. Okay, so uh, do you have a rooting Actually, interest? Actually, there, it's kind of cathartic because every year I feel so loyal to my school that I, in in any bracket I just pick Michigan to win. So now you have a chance and, to and, see and, and now I don't feel compelled to do that. I mean, I guess I could write them in, but... And no, you're a one-bracket guy. You're not a fill-out yeah, like three or four I'm brackets. I'm not doing six and, brackets. I'm not doing the sheet of integrity. Is that because you can't keep track of them? <laughs> no, there's an app for it. Well, how hard is it to keep track just, of but, All right, so are you a I watch Sunday night for the reveal guy or, or uh, show me the sheet no. the next day? No, I wait for it to be over, and then I look on my phone. Okay. So like, yeah. I don't need them talking for an hour about who's getting selected where and, and then talking to the committee about <laughs> the first four in and the last four in and the first four out. Why do I care about that? Are I, you in or are you not in? I love your level of sports interest. You only put up with so much conversation around the sport. Like, you want to watch the sport, and when people start talking, you're like, forget it, I'm done. I don't, yeah. (laughs) I don't want any more of that. Even though we talk about it. It's a shame we do a talk radio show at this point, because that's difficult for you. If if everybody took my advice, they'd just turn off the show. Coaching turnover continues to happen. Uh, Patrick Ewing out. Jim Beheim retiring. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of. Con- con- yeah. That was awkward, mm-hmm. that yeah. press conference. I-, I felt bad for that reporter. They just kept asking the question over and over again, and Beheim was not giving anything. Well, look, it, it, it's, it was definitely time. I just don't like the way that it was done. Do you think he deserved more just because of what he was, or you didn't like how he went out? Certain, it? When, when you have coaches that have been around that long and have done so much, I mean, there's a handful of coaches that have had those kinds of careers. And it's always difficult. Is what do you do when it gets to the point that it's kind of the time? But if you look at what happens when when these legendary coaches leave, 
it doesn't usually work out well. Hard like, to follow a legend. It, exactly. I mean, look look what's going on in North Carolina now. They're not going to make the tournament this year. I mean, Duke seems to be doing okay, but w- how about l- look in our own backyard? Look what's going on with Villanova. Yeah, tough season. Look, this Jay Wright be- went from just a super dominant program for so long to he left, and they're not going to the tourney this I year. I don't know. I don't remember if it's the 70s or 80s. It's the first time in, in decades that they won't have one of the big five schools in the NCAA tournament this year. So you're going to have kind of a different-looking tournament with some of those blue bloods that have been there before that aren't playing as well this year. See what other bubble teams get in. Do you like when bubble teams get in in advance, or do you like the big names? Like some people what? don't. Some people don't like the small schools winning. They want to see because That's they want to the see beauty of the tournament. They, not to everybody. Some people want to see what they think are the best teams play, and if the number of the seed is higher, they're a better team. And they don't like. I love the upset. Okay. I love the last minute uh, drama. Who didn't think it was a it was a great story when St. Peter's made the tournament? Agreed. Well, uh, apparently across the board, Halley does not think it was a great idea behind the glass. Well, I, I was also <laughs> excited because everybody kept walking around going, "Who knows anybody that went to St. Peter's?" And I'm like, "My dad went." There. You were just happy that they talked about Sister Jean. That's really, uh, no, or that's not St. Peter's. No, that was, that's, that's a different. That, school. That's the Chicago school. Very good. Okay, I'll get these right yeah. eventually. All right, uh, last thing on the tournament. Yeah. Are you a guy that will, like, take off Thursday and watch? Or do you watch on your app while you're working? Like, what's your level of interest in the tournament? I am not watching during the day, except if I go to lunch with a bunch of people All right, and watch grumpy. over lunch. All right, wait. It's not grumpy. I have a job to do. It's a holiday to start the tournament. If it was Michigan playing, I'd, I'd be a little more interested in stopping. I used to tell my parents that I treated the first two days of March Madness as a holiday and didn't go to class. Their response was, I didn't go to class on the other days. What was my excuse? But I did not go when it was March Madness. I would just sit around and watch the games. Granted, I, I did have money on the games at that point of my life and much, much more interested. You know, you're in going them. down a road that I'm <laughs> not supposed to comment on, so I'm just going to refrain. You're going to leave it there. I'm going to be a good kid. Let's stick with basketball before we get to baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matisse Seibel coming back to town tonight with Portland. Uh, taking, taking a little shot. Before, take, yeah. Taking some shots at Doc today. Uh, played in fear. But is he taking a shot at Doc or is he taking a shot at the organization? Or, or I, I, I option three. Is he not taking responsibility for the way he handled himself too? Because he got every opportunity at times to play, not in the scenarios that we would have wanted. Mm. He didn't knock down shots. In the, in the opportunities he got. He didn't got. look like he could shoot. That's the problem. I mean, it's not just that he wasn't knocking down shots. It looked painful when he would shoot. It, it was not an orthodox delivery. But now he's comfortable in Portland and playing better. Okay, that, well, that's good. I mean, I'm happy for him. It, it, I mean, look, Matisse was part of the rotation until he did something stupid. Let's not forget, he he may have cost the Sixers last year because he decided not to get vaccinated and couldn't play in Toronto, and they were shorthanded. Correct? Do you think that was... Am I wrong? Do you think that was kind of the, the last straw with the team when that happened last year? I don't know if there were any straws before that. You didn't hear anything about Matisse. Look, he had a limited repertoire, and just because he's now hitting 40% of his, his three-pointers in a short time in Portland doesn't mean that he's going to go on to be the three and D guy that we had hoped that he will. He will always be a D guy. The question is, he's now he's now playing on a Portland team that's irrelevant. Lots of players can put up decent stats when you're playing on a team that's irrelevant and getting minutes. True. 
that's what his situation is right now. So for the Sixers, there's 17 games left in the season. They're 43 and 22, 7 and 3 in their last 10, 31 and 11 since December 5th. So playing better ball. Mm-hmm. I said last week on the show, I don't think that many fans will buy in until this team advances until out of the, the second third round. round. Yes, until they yes. get out of the second round, it's a I'll believe it when I see it type thing. Sort of like the Phillies were this past year. Like I'll believe it when I see it if they get in, you know, they we, we talked about it during the season. Should they sell off? You still don't let me forget my comment about Reese Hoskins, Hoskins at one point during the season. Look, I, I still think he has his limitations as a first baseman. That will never change no matter how many home runs he hits I, in big I, games. I would like to just <laughs> tell James Harden and whoever his his. You mean the is, I'm going back to Houston, yeah, James Harden? He is, he, whatever enthusiasm is starting to develop for the Sixers, he, is, he and his team are deflating that. You mean, I mean you don't uh, like a story coming out every couple of days about how he's going to go back to Houston? Uh, I'm I'm being serious, right? Which, now. by the way, we wouldn't be able do, to do use the not, money from his salary if he wasn't here. Okay, but I'm being for, I'm being serious about this. Do, do you do you not think that a, a large portion of the city who is already skeptical of this team to begin with is is not kind of turned off by the fact that these two are finally getting on the same page and being hardened? They're doing well. It's not like they're going to come in first or second in the conference. They'll probably be third still at this point. They're not going to be favorites to get beyond the second round, depending on who they – and James Harden's already floating out there that he's going to go to the worst team in the NBA. I don't know if like, – I don't understand why this needs to come out. What, what purpose does it serve to get that information out there? Is it a negotiating tool? Yes, that's all it is. Well, it's a ridiculous negotiating. It's not tool. meant for fans. But what's what's how is that negotiating? Well, you're the negotiator, that's not the, me. But that's what I'm telling you. You this, do this for a this living. Is a if you think this is a bad to, idea, it's a bad way to negotiate. Well, it's bad if you're planning to come back to the Sixers. If you're planning no, to I don't, leave, I, he gets you no, can br- burn the bridges and the boats too. And get out of the town well, if you want to. But 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 I mean, this is a guy. He wants to go back. Three years ago, he burned his bridge on the way out of Houston. He, Apparently he not. He's rebuilding eat, it. He was basically eating his way out of, of Houston, and then all of a sudden got to Brooklyn, and then didn't like it there. And now he doesn't think that this is perfect. I think either. people care more about Embiid's health than they do where James Harden is talking about potentially playing next year. I think the fact that he's had foot soreness and he's had injuries the past couple of years, and and the fans just don't feel like he'll be able to last at this point. You're just conditioned for waiting for that next shoe to drop. And you come out of the All-Star break with a player that was hurt and not feeling good going in, Mm -hmm. who wasn't potentially going to play, then plays 28 minutes and then sits right after the All-Star break. And that's the kind of stuff I think that drives fans crazier than conversation about whether James Harden is going to leave after the season. I also think that the Sixers missed opportunities to get some of these players after they were cut. Oh, yeah. No, they, they've, I, I, they've got I will, Dwayne Dedman, who still I, hasn't made it on the court. I, I will tell you that I, I would be a whole lot more excited about the Sixers if they had gotten Kevin Love. You mean you don't think that um, PJ Tucker would, at the the PJ Tucker at the five lineup, which by the way, Doc says today he know, wants to great. try more of it. He's great. Going to go. Let's not give he's, Paul Reed any fabulous. experience in the regular season, so we have a legitimate backup center who can get on the basketball court. Right. Let's play small ball and have fun in the regular season, so we're not prepared when we need to deploy this lineup. How exciting would this lineup be if PJ Tucker were moved to the bench and Kevin Love were playing power forward? They could have done that. Well, he chose to go to Miami. Well, but there you, are other but players I that they could have put in there. I didn't hear anything that the Sixers were interested in getting him. 
I think he had a conversation with them, right. but I don't know whether he actually, like, how far it went. But he was going to Miami, but there are other players out there they could have gotten, and they weren't active in that market. They've created this situation, and now they have the chance to either win we with have, it. We have Daniel House. Who doesn't get on Never the court. Never gets on the court. Yeah. And that's the question. You got Montrez Har- Harrell. Who shouldn't get, get on, on the, the court. court. I'm sorry. He should not get on the court over Paul Reed. Paul Reed wasn't on the court because he couldn't run the offense and he was a liability. This is going to at, be a 50-win team. At and this and point. The most unimpressive 50 wins you can have. Well, that's what's happened. They've raised the bar of success so high. No, they, they haven't. Uh, yes, they've they, lowered the bar. Well, that, okay, you're right. You think that they've raised the bar when, because they've had a lot of success. So they have not had a lot of success. This is a short success. person problem. I, okay. The lower, higher, right. I get so, I get mixed up so with so that. Some, somebody who, who's above that bar. Yes, I'm never above goes, any bar. Right? Not, not, not as any expectations of myself. Yes. It, they have created a, a level of just above mediocrity. Is what's happening. They're they're not particularly exciting to watch when they play. You have a star who started the season in Embiid, who kind of was moping around. Right? He's not really embraced the city the way that some of the other players from the other teams in the city have. You have James Harden, who's putting out word that he's another he's going to be gone at the end of this year if things don't work out perfectly for him. It's it's not there's something about this team that's missing and we talk, we've talked about it for years that it's always missing and yeah is it nice to make the playoffs super it's not nice to constantly make it to the second round it it's just not it, it this was not what you did the process for no. The process has been an abject failure. Even if the Sixers somehow won the championship is the process, is the process it was not over? because of the profit. Of course the process is over. Who's left from the process? Joel Embiid. That's it. <laughs> that is it. Ben Simmons isn't even on the court in another team anymore. I, I mean, this the Sixers. We we should not because people will just drive off the side of the road. <laughs> it, you can go back and look. Instead of get, taking Markel Fultz, you could have had a first pick or first round pick plus Jason Tatum. Yes, you could. We'll leave that there. I, I don't want people to truly lose their minds. Let's go to another exciting topic: Phillies uh, spring training. Well, spring training isn't exciting. It is, except for the news that's been coming out of spring training. Uh, Some injuries of concern. Look, there's a lot of good stories coming out of spring training. There's the rules changes that we can get to. Runs are up. Hits are up. Games are about 25 minutes shorter. Talk about that. The news this week, which took a week to come out, which raised even more concerns, is that Andrew Painter has a strained UCL mm-hmm. shut and down. And for people who don't know what the UCL is, think Tommy John surgery. Now, the hope is that it's mm-hmm. the other side of the elbow from what you're reading, which is less likely Dr. to have Springer. Tommy John. Yeah. Uh, Twitter Dr. Springer. Right. Thank you. <laughs> I stayed at a Holiday Inn <laughs> Express last night. Uh, look, anytime you hear about tears in an elbow for right. a pitcher... It's not something. Yeah, just that, so when people when 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 like you a hear sprain a sprain, is still a tear. It's a tear. Yes, it's, it's just still a, a tear. Supposedly a minor tear. Yeah, it's as a, I air quoted. It's a question of how significant the tear is and where it is. The and fact like, is, is uh, you know, I I try not to listen to Scott Burroughs, but that is his agent, and you heard him say the other day of like there are lots of statistics about somebody who is that young, who throws that hard, and is that that big, and you have to be very careful about this. I don't see how Painter is going to be. They're going to do anything other than shut him down. Well, he shut I ho- down for look, a month. I, ho- I hope. Yeah, he shut down for a month. But if you're shut down for a month, that means you're starting from scratch again. 
Yeah. You just don't pick it up. Now you have to go through basic spring training again. You got to build back up. And and you have to do it slowly. Yes. And so it, you're not going to see him before the All-Star break anywhere would be my guess. If you, Even if you do, are they going to take a risk that they're going to put a – he'll be 20 in April. Are they going to put a 20-year-old out there who is one of their top prospects and have it end up like a guy that you didn't want to trade a couple of years ago in Sixto? You didn't Sanchez. want to trade him either. Oh, I didn't. I was okay with trading him. It it actually was the other guy. I can't even remember his name now. Spencer, um, Spencer Howard. Yes, and yeah. and he was the guy I didn't want to turn. And, and it, that ended up being a fine trade. So <laughs> you were okay with being wrong. Yeah, on that but one. but you just don't know what these guys' arms and and because he. I know they say he throws easy, but when you're six seven and there's all those mechanics that you have to do. You have to be very careful about what you're doing. And then the question is, is are you just wasting time avoiding what will be the inevitable? And that inevitable might be, should he just have the Tommy John surgery now? I'm not somebody that's going to tell somebody else what to do with their bodies. But with baseball players, it seems like once you start to have this, have the Tommy John surgery, miss the year, by then he'll only be 22. I and hope that's stronger. Not, I hope that's not the case. I was so excited to see him pitch at some point. This okay, season. so what's going to happen? Okay, so, I don't so, know. But yeah, but play I the, don't know how they're going play to play this him. out. Play this out. He he goes through the month. He then starts to rehab his way back. He all star break comes. Get you get past the all star break, and he comes out and pitches. Are you not going to be? Every watching every movement of his body after every pitch. Is it really fair to ask me that? Don't I watch everything yes, and but, think it's like the end of the world? I'm not the right person to ask that. I always think something is going on, but you're right. I will think just like every time Joel Embiid falls to the ground, okay, so, so I worry I, he's not going to get back up. I don't know why I'm having a hard time with names. National Steven Strasburg. Yes. Okay. Steven Strasburg was that kind of pitcher. Yes. Okay. And Steven Strasburg was a great pitcher in college. Got to the majors, had moments of greatness, but every time he was out there, you just watched to see if he would and waited shake for his it. arm, and it happened. Well, look, the, the Ranger Suarez came back from the WBC with forearm tightness. I mean, that's not what you want to see for a team that's looking to compete. Forearm, I'm a little less concerned about. If you can have a little fun. They just said, okay, we're going to slow that down. Because if, if Ranger goes down too, I don't know what you do. Yeah. It, Bailey Falter becomes your fourth pitcher. Yeah. Yeah, that's not the rotation that you want there. Exactly. You know, we'll see what happens with that. The the bench competition. Well, unless, unless Mick Abel's going to be up here. I don't know I don't what know. they're going to do with the roster. They've got different roster decisions from do they keep Noah Song on the roster, the Navy guy who would revert back to the Red Sox. Have you Sox? seen him pitch yet? Not at all. Okay, so we don't know. I have no idea what they're yeah. going to do. It's a feel-good story, How many guys he hasn't pitched in How many guys years, do right? they keep on the bench versus the bullpen? Is it only two spots for the four guys that seem to be competing right now, Derek Hall, Jake Cave, Scott Kingery, and Cody Clemens? I don't know how they're going to make up this wait, roster. Wait, wait, who, what you, who did do. you just go through in the infield? Derek Hall. Derek uh, Hall makes the opening roster. Jake Cave. No. Scott Kingery. Yeah. Cody Clemens. What about Harrison? See, I think Harrison makes it regardless. I don't think he's in one of those spots. Well, then, because they brought him in separately. So I think I think Harrison's one of the spots on the roster. Now look, he can play himself out of it, right. but I think the assumption is I think the assumption going in is that, that he was one. Soto was another spot on the bench. Uh, Hall was another spot. You mean Sosa. Uh, Sosa Sosa was a, was another spot on the bench. 
Sosa's um, definitely making the team. He's hit very yeah, well he's, in the spring. He's having a great spring. He's developed a little pop. It looks like he's got a little extra muscle. He fits perfectly on this team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the he, one question is going to be was whether Bryson Stott. Now, apparently, he's been working on a new swing, so we're supposed to be patient with this. And you're the one evolve. who tells me nothing matters in the spring. You're the one who tells me not to worry, not to get too excited that Alec Bohm's hitting home runs in spring training. Oh, uh, I don't, I don't get overly excited, but I will get concerned. You get overly concerned. Yeah, <laughs> just don't not, get overly, not overly excited. concerned, but I am a little concerned. Although they say that Bryson Stott's learning to swing differently, so. Let's hope he gets that all out of his system in the spring and that he's the second baseman. But you do have Sosa there in case he doesn't. We got about four minutes till we hit the break. Uh, do you want to talk Eagles? What do you want to talk about, Jeff? I don't, I don't want to talk about the Flyers. You don't want to talk about the Flyers? I don't. <laughs> poor, poor Flyers. Look, I would, I would love to talk about them, but I, I don't. I just don't think it's a story. Look, we are going to talk about it anyway. I don't think I did a, not do this, by the way. I, know, I gave you, you the choice. I know, but I don't think it's a story at this point that they fired Chuck Fletcher. I have a because question. Because it was inevitable that they were going to fire Chuck Fletcher. He he got embarrassed on the trade deadline. Why was he, he here long enough to do the trade like, deadline? Are you telling me that you couldn't trade some of the guys that were on this team? Oh, no, they didn't get their value, Jeff. It, you know their what? value. They have no value. They'll leave after the season. You got no assets for them. You have no plan. You've destroyed a franchise. People could say whatever they want. It may not have been the largest fan base in the city, mm-hmm. but there was a hardcore, dedicated Flyers fan base. You know how much I love hockey. Oh, you sent me photos of the Rangers Flyers game. I and, was. And I could not. Oh, find you mean the game that there. was at Wells Fargo Center that yeah. seemed like I was at MSG long yeah. before the Rangers scored the game-winning goal, which everybody predicted would happen that whole game. It was so predictable. Watching this team is infuriating. It's not just Chuck Fletcher. They're going to have to make more changes. They got nothing down on the farm. They've got nothing here with the big team. It's pathetic. It is literally wow, a dumpster fire. You know I don't normally react like this. But to go through a deadline. And is Tortorella the right guy to rebuild with? You're telling me that James Van Riemsdyk, who goes and stands in front of a goal and can knock in a deflection, couldn't go to any cup contender right. for any warm how about, how body. About, how about Travis Konechny? Well, he's out with an injury now, so they weren't going to uh, yeah, move him at no, all. No, you could still move him. But but I don't think they were able to with what the NHL was saying with the salaries. They didn't want people to dump injured players in salaries. So I think mm. they're a little more restricted there. Yeah, it, it wasn't uh, what, they, what they wanted them to do <laughs> at all. But, I mean, how do you not move some of the guys that you do have that you're not going to bring back next year? All Ivan Provorov does not want to be anywhere near this city. All, all I know, all I know is you have you finally, after decades, had a goalie, and you're going to waste. For his years, goal. we said on this show, until the Flyers get a goalie, they will not win anything. They finally get a goalie, and they surround him with reclaimed wood. They don't even get nice furniture for the house. It's unbelievable mm-hmm. what they've done to this team, <laughs> and like I just. I don't understand, and I don't know how it changes because Comcast doesn't seem to be paying attention to what's going on there. They didn't oh, know. I think, some of, I think they're going to be paying attention. So you think that more heads uh, rolled? I, I think that's exactly what's going on here. I think that people are. I think that people higher up are pay, are taking notice. They look. They did. This is the kind of ownership you kind of wanted to have, don't you? Want ownership to trust the people that they hire. 
No, not when yes. they hire terrible people. Well, no, but they didn't know they they didn't hire them with the intent. If that they, they were watched going to be te- this team did for you, any of the did last you think four Chuck years, Chuck Fletcher was going to be a bad GM before when he was hired. I could have told you after year one in the moves no, he made you it. Couldn't. No, you some of the not. oh, we we only have thirty seconds. We cannot get into this. I will come armed next week with some of the bad moves that I, Chuck I, Fletcher I, made to try to make this team. Yeah, but, they're not any faster or younger to compete with any yeah, team in you, this league. You didn't know that after one year. Oh, you could tell early on that Chuck Fletcher wasn't. I just the have a different here. idea of management, and I think that you hire somebody that, and you expect them to perform. And he didn't perform. He was given an opportunity to do it, and now you start over. And when they don't perform you cut ties i'm glad they did jeff let's hit the break and we'll come back with kate fagan operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains and the engineers labor employer cooperative elec puts them to work they create opportunities for the men women and union signatory contractors of local 825 repaving our roads keeping our homes bright and warm and even building our favorite team stadium we understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. All right, Jeff, it's Women's History Month. we got somebody who's a bit of a historian, storyteller for women in her own right here. Award-winning writer and author Kate Fagan joins the show. Kate, thank you so much for the time. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So, Kate, before we get to your new book, Hoop Muses, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention as a Philadelphia show, your time as the beat writer of the Sixers for the Philadelphia Inquirer. (laughs) I love Philadelphia. Like, it's just every time I'm back there, I talk to somebody back there, they remember the days that I was the beat writer. So... um, I loved it. In fact, in in advance of this interview, I text my best friend is Kate Scott. Um current voice of the Sixers. So I texted her. I was like, what do I need to know about the team right now? Haven't caught a game in a while. (laughs) She sent me like eight paragraphs. I was like, okay, I think I understand. Cool. (laughs) So what do you remember most about your time covering the team? Oh man. I mean, first is like at the time I didn't think I was that young, right? I was like, oh, I'm kind of seasoned. I'm 27. Um, So now when I look back on it, I'm like, I, what I kind of think about is I tried really hard. Like I, I, I really, like worked hard and I wanted uh, like, I wanted to like convey as much as I could to viewers and fans. Um, But I was really young. Like I, I took like kind of risks that I probably wouldn't take now. Um, It was, it was a tough time too. There wasn't a ton of like winning, winning. So it wasn't like the team was happy. They were sort of skeptical of things you did, Um, you know, so it was like it was a it was a huge learning curve for me. And I and I loved it. But it like, I don't know what I would do if I had to cover the team now and be a completely different thing. Yeah, there's a little bit of a different feeling uh, around the team and and with the team. You know, you you go on after you after you cover the team, you you this isn't your first book. We're going to talk about Hoops Muses. But um, in 2014, you authored your own book, The Reappearing Act, coming out as gay on a college basketball team led by born again Christians. We often talk with athletes about how they use their platform to make an impact for people. For for you and the platform that you had and, and for yourself personally, how important was it for you to, to tell your own story and, and help others in the process probably doing so? I mean, that book for me, the, the first book I wrote, it was a different time, even in the sports landscape. I mean, that, that book was like right around the time when like Jason Collins was on the cover of Sports Illustrated and Michael Sam had just 
kind of not made the NFL. Um, and, and women's sports had always kind of operated in a different plane where, you know, there had been more, like you would know if you're playing women's sports, like that there were more gay athletes, but still when I was playing college basketball until years after in all of college basketball, there was no openly gay coach, which is just like absurd. You know, I mean, there's 300 and whatever division one programs. And so it was still a world where it was really, it was hard. So I wrote that book just to, for a lot of female athletes who might've, you know, felt similarly, had had similar experiences. And even though it wasn't a book that like, you know, was a huge bestseller, there's still like athletes who might email me every once in a while and be like, I read that book in college and it was really helpful. And that's always an awesome feeling. So you write that book and now we're, it's only nine years later since you wrote that book, right? That book was written in 2014. How much has the landscape changed socially between the time you wrote that book and the time that you've now written this book, Hoop Muses? Oh, I mean, if we're looking at just like the women's sports landscape and then the social issues kind of around it, it's dramatically different. And it almost like, it almost kind of just reached that that tip, you know, I hate that Malcolm Gladwell phrase, but it did. It kind of reached a tipping point where nobody was out and we kind of weren't talking about it. And then in women's sports, just enough women started talking about it that it became almost a non-issue. Like now it almost, you know, it's like when, when we talk about Sue Bird, we don't really talk about that part of her life. We just talk about the greatness of her game. And so we kind of have gotten past, almost past that in certain aspects of women's sports um, which is not something I would have ever imagined when I was playing or even when I, when I wrote that first book. But yeah, it's, it's drastically different. So you're out with your new book this week, Hoop Muses. I made sure to say it right this time when I screwed it it's up tough. the first I mean, time. I you shouldn't feel bad. There, the percentage of people who have said it right is in the single digit. This was a concern, <laughs> though, for you. I heard you say when yes. this wasn't the original book title. Can you talk about no. the process of how this book came about and then how you became comfortable with a title that you weren't into at first? Yeah. So we kind of went out with it and we just had a placeholder name of Love and Basketball. Because that's the, if you ask most women's basketball players, like what their favorite movie is, it's usually love and basketball. It's kind of the only one that got it right. You know, that kind of showed a true love for the game. And, and, you know, as a female athlete, you didn't see that represented a lot, but anyway, so we went out with that name, but I knew I couldn't keep that name because everyone would think it was like a companion book to the movie. So, um, but like originally the, the whole, you know, the whole, the idea was just born of, wanting to do something really fun and joyful in, in, in telling some of these stories that I had known growing up and finding others that I hadn't known, because I didn't think that many people, especially female athletes are not often allowed to just like be joyful and fun and vibrant. It's, it's often kind of met with, you have to, you have to account for society's, you you know, burden on not, you know, financially supporting it or whatever. You always had to kind of account for something. And I didn't want that to be the energy of this book. Um, and then the Hoop Muse's name, I've said it enough now that I don't stumble, but <laughs> as a writer, you pay attention to words. I knew that the two vowels were conflicting. Like the hoop and the muse, unless you are doing like linguistic exercises before you say this, you're going to stumble. I almost want like the PR team for the book to send a note, if you're a host, 
read the book out the name out loud a couple times. No one thinks to do it. Then they try to say it for the first time and it's, it, it hasn't gone well. Um, but I eventually realized most people wouldn't be saying the name of like once it, you know, in the next couple of weeks, when I stop talking about it, people will just look at it and you'll read it in your head. And that's much easier to do than to say out loud. You know, you talk about that you wanted a book that that's fun, that talks about women's sports and women's basketball in a different kind of way. The, the way that the book is written and the way it's presented is even fun. Uh, whose idea was it to come up with the way that, and, and if you could describe for the listeners, the way that the book is laid out? So the book is, well, one, the, like, the book is illustrated by Sophia Chang with like really colorful, vibrant illustrations. We've got she does most of the artwork, but then there's like movie posters, reimagined movie posters by Louis Chin. And then there's comic book art throughout by an artist named Milana Bond. And that was a structure I put in place toward the very end of writing the book. I was, the book was basically done and all I could, I was, it was in chronological order. And that just felt like not creative enough for the book we wanted in the illustrations and what we were hoping the experience would be like. And um, when we had, when I had gone out to publishers, we had um, in the, in the materials that I wrote through, we had this idea that we were going to have this little girl walk across the bottom of every, every page. Like, so, you know, those books where you can like flip through the pages and it gives you like movement. Mm -hmm. We wanted to have like a young girl, she'd be really young in the beginning pages and she'd get older as you went through the book. But when we got to the end, Sophia had already, yeah. It's not in my copy. Well, no, no, no. Yeah. (laughs) It's not there. It's not there. And um, because Sophia had done so many illustrations, I didn't want to make her do, you know, 230 little girl (laughs) illustrations. So I went out and found a comic book artist and I was like, you know what, we're going to, we're going to start in the future and we're going to create this like device where this future athlete, you know, kind of almost like a Christmas carol, right. Has to like go back in time and like learn. So you, you, you start in the future with Jacqueline Jones, who's the biggest star in the future, but she doesn't know who Maya Moore is, you know? So it's like, Oh, you don't know who Maya Moore is like, Oh, young one, we're going to have to take you on a journey. And you kind of learn and you in the comic books are throughout and you learn and you kind of go along with her and she's reacting to things she'd never known. And then we bring her back to the future in 2072 and she's, you know, edified. She has learned the history and she understands the lineage of her game. Talk to us about how important this book is for for marking those cultural references for for women in sports so that they can be included in these larger conversations and let girls connect with women athlete more athletes more. So they don't have to have posters of men athletes that they look up to on the wall. They can have the Maya Moores up on the wall. Like you talk about. Yeah. I think, you know, that was top of mind for me when we were making this book was just, you know, we, we talked about, and we hope at some point kind of in the next month or two, we'll, we might create posters of some of Sophia's illustrations of certain players who are front and center, like, you know, like Kelsey Plum right now, who plays for the Aces, is a really dynamic player, really popular player. And we just wanted some of these, some of like the amount of resources we poured into this book is sort of standard fare for what happens in the men's game. You know, you, you've got beautiful artwork of, and beautiful posters you can find, whether it's Nike ads, Adidas ads, Puma ads, and you, you could have those posters growing up. 
And those just really were, were incredibly rare to find. And it's not that I don't, I mean, I don't think you're ever going to get away from certain, you know, players loving whoever NBA stars are of that day, because that's what the culture loves. But I think it's okay if they have both a Steph Curry poster, you know, and a Sabrina Inescu poster. And just to get to some of that parody or make those things more easily accessible is certainly part of the future I want. And just being able to in- inject some of that like dynamic pop culture into the book was, was key from the start. Yeah, I mean, I, this might be a bad analogy. So you can, sh- you both can shoot me down if you want to. But, <laughs> you know, I think about like, boys grew up with Space Jam. And, and yep. this, this book has almost like a literary version of Space Jam to it. And I could picture girls and hopefully boys too wanting some of the art that is in here there on their wall and kind of looking at it and saying i'd love to be in that kind of photo and be maya moore or one of the other people that are in the book yeah no i mean that is that is definitely kind of the analogy is just it's it's sometimes we forget the amount of like you take space jam for example i don't know what the budget was of that movie but like probably pretty expensive right like let's Mm -hmm. say it was space jam 2 Let's say it was a hundred million. Think about like the amount of money that is poured in to creating some beautiful, like kind of graphical artwork in a moving motion picture at the heart of it is selling to people, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, the NBA and the men's game. And that that's not money that's coming out of the NBA's pocket. And so some of, some of that is like part of what we wanted to infuse into this book was like, you know, the ways that we have taken the men's game and other parts of pop culture have poured their resources into elevating it, whether it's sneaker culture, fashion, movies, music, all of that stuff does so much legwork for the NBA or men's sports. And, um, you know, in our own little way, because we have like at the back of it, we have like the original Space Jam poster, but this one stars Cheryl Swoops. Um, and then we have like the Space Jam 2, but this one stars Asia Wilson. Um, just to show you like what kind of cool cultural touchstones would exist if, if women were, had been at the center of them. You know, you talk in the book about the significance when Barack Obama came to a game. And we're talking about pop culture and, and celebrity sort of embracing the game and elevating the level. What has to happen to have pop culture and celebrities embrace the game even more? And frankly, have the league embraced them more to those celebrities that want to reach out? So do you get that energy, like when you have a Spike Lee sitting courtside for the Knicks or Jack Nicholson sitting there for the Lakers, you have that celebrity associated with that team that gets more media coverage that doesn't change the fact they're great ball players, but gives them more exposure just by somebody associating with the sport. Yeah, I mean, it's such a good point about the way that like those courtside seats kind of create this energy that sells an extra 10,000 tickets. You know, like there, I would go to a Brooklyn Nets game because I'm like, well, if Jay-Z is going to be there, that means I'm in the cool spot, you know, so I'm, I'm willing to pay, you know, 80 bucks for a, a ticket in a certain section because I'm clearly part of something cultural here. And that has... I think the WNBA is slowly getting there. I mean, we, this these, this last year, I could name more instances of that than I necessarily could have in the past. Like specific, like I'm thinking now of like Chance the Rapper being at almost all of the Chicago Sky games when they won the title, not this past season, but the season before. And and then also just the men of the NBA, the, the male players in the NBA 
like on the um, heels of, of the death of Kobe, kind of taking up that mantle and really advocating for the women's game and sharing the spotlight by not just kind of like begrudgingly going to one game a year, but like genuinely being fans and engaging with the storylines around the W. Like, I don't think we've ever seen one of the best players in the NBA kind of get into the free agency of the WNBA before Kevin Durant started talking about getting Brianna Stewart to get, you know, to come to, to New York from Seattle. It's stuff like that that really drives the cultural value of things. And, but I don't know, like, I don't know how you take the next step. Sometimes I think it's just planting the seed in people's minds. Like I have one, I forget who it was who mentioned like the WNBA will have made it when like Beyonce sits courtside, but like if Beyonce knew that all she had to do was go to one Liberty game to like change how people feel about the Liberty, she'd probably go to a Liberty game. She probably just hasn't even considered that, you know, she's very busy, so maybe she wouldn't, but you know, it probably hasn't, she hasn't crossed her mind the amount of value that would provide to the league. But I think those things are on the horizon. Speaking, speaking of like, what, what could make the game better? What could, what about the idea of NIL? How important is NIL to all women's sports, but particularly women's basketball? I mean, I, we've been talking about, like, I do a podcast called Off the Looking Glass, and we have a lot of college coaches on, you know, from Don Staley to Kelly Jolly Harper at Tennessee, and we asked them about the NIL, or players themselves, Aaliyah Boston we had on, and, like, I wish I could fully understand what is happening with the NIL, you know, like, I try to understand. I try to understand the collectives. And I also try to understand the impact for the future of women's sports because the NIL is not driven by NIL money for for female athletes. Obviously, it's driven by where football players and men's basketball players are going. So I'm, I'm at a little bit of a loss right now to figure out what the future there is and, and what that relationship is going to be like. I think in the short term, it's going to reinforce right now that the way the WNBA is in terms of the, just a hard salary cap on, on, on their, on the way they pay players, as well as like, they still don't have charter flights. Like we still have a few years before that next collective bargaining agreement. So it still reinforces that the NCAA right now is a really strong place to play. If you're a female athlete, because if you're a Caitlin Clark at Iowa, you're going to get NIL money. You're, playing in front of like sold out crowds. There's not much right now that, that the WNBA is going to offer you besides the absolute best competition. So you have to decide whether you're going to kind of stay and make some money and play in front of a home crowd or whether you're ready to test yourself against the very best. But that doesn't quite answer your question because I'm a, a bit at a loss for like what the actual future of the NIL will look like. Don't worry. So is everybody else. Doesn't okay, matter. Good. I mean, I, I wasn't hope I, if I, if you wanted me to provide clarity, no, completely it, failed. It, it honestly doesn't matter whether you ask coaches, commentators, nobody seems to know what athletic director. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Right. Nobody yeah. knows yeah. what that world will end up looking like. I did want to ask, we talked more about the culture side of the book, the, the history side of the book. I introduced you as a historian. I learned a lot about the women's game reading this book from the 2-1 game where men were banned from watching but climbed up to the rooftops to look through to dispelling myths that I thought where New York is the last state in the country to have a high school women's basketball tournament that women's basketball actually became more prominent in the South than in small rural towns. Can you talk about how this game has grown through time and, and how you were able to tell that historical story 
Well, I've never been called a historian before, and I really kind of, um, it agreed with me. <laughs> because there, I, I was talking to um, Howard Bryant, who I work with at, at Meadowlark, and he is definitely more of a historian. He's written books on, you know, the history of baseball. And I was like, you know, there's nothing better than learning some nugget in history that is so cool. And then you can also apply it to, like, why the world is the way it is today. And so I've really I really embraced that in reporting this book. And you, I mean, you're you're. I didn't know, I thought I knew a lot about basketball history going into this project, but I really couldn't, I couldn't tell you much between 1891 and 1970. But um, the process of like finding out about these, the games, like the you mentioned the first intercollegiate game between Stanford and, and Cal, which like sounds like it should be boring, but it, the way that you really learn about like the ways culture limited women in those early days, like there were nine people per side on that, in that game, women were trapped in thirds of the court with no dribbling. So it's like when it ended two to one, you have to ask yourself, how would you score? If you could only stay in the third of a court, you couldn't dribble. So it's like, you can't move, you know? So it's like, if you catch the ball and there's a defender there, like what, what are you really going to do? You can't, I guess there's no traveling. There's no traveling, right. but, you, but you can't run with the ball. You have to, so it's just very complicated. But all of this was in an attempt to, you know, try to keep the game as long as they could. And by that, I mean, they knew they couldn't make it too physical. They had to like, they had to change the rules because they knew they would be canceled if they played it the way the, the men played it. They just wanted the game to stay. It still got canceled anyway, right? Like Stanford cancels it couple years later and and you don't see women's basketball at Stanford again until 60s and 70s and and now they are the 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 behemoth they are today but I I mean they're just like there were so many stories throughout the history that really showed like depression era cities and barnstorming clubs and just really reflected the culture in the same way we just have come to expect men's sports do. What's been the reception among the women's basketball community to the book? Well, I think um, we're kind of in the early stages where, you know, everyone kind of has their book. They're kind of looking at it. So, so right now it's just like kind of that superficial, like, this is beautiful. Like, we love it. I'm interested when then, you know, you get into it and like, who did I forget? Who did I leave out? Like, That's for the next book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, whose power meter did I get incorrect on the NBA jam reimagining? You know, We'll see how all that plays out in the long run. <laughs> you know, you didn't shy away from the tough issues in this book. You, you took on the issue of WNBA players earning uh, huge salaries overseas, wrongful de- detention of Brittany Griner. Um, we talked with TJ Quinn recently about how delicate it was for him to report on that issue. From your perspective, how do, how do you think that issue played out and what has to change for women to stop going overseas for those dollars to stay and play here? Um, yeah, I mean, it, women playing in Russia and China was just sort of a fact of life for me for 10, 15 years, especially when I was at ESPN. Like I did, I did, I went to China to write a story about Brittany. I went to Russia three times. So it was surprising when you're kind of shocked out of your bubble and you hear that people are coming to learn for the first time that women have to go overseas to make money. Um, but I think that the key thing that I think about right now, right now, now that Brittany's home, Brittany Griner is home, is that the future of the W right now is there's a couple things that are on the horizon. And the first is that 
the league's TV rights are up in two years. And I think this is like, couldn't be better timing for them to be up. I mean, they've been at ESPN for so long and they've often just been a toss in with the NBA rights. And this is going to be the first time they've really hit the open market in a moment when a lot of streamers want to get into to TV rights and the WNBA could be like an affordable first step into that. And I think the WNBA is also in a position to say, like, you, it can't just be our league rights. You also have to build storytelling around the games because that has that has been a huge uh, downfall of, like, having those league rights at ESPN. Like, there hasn't been really any any talk shows, any pre, any post-game shows, like, to, to like, actually introduce people to who these athletes are. And I, and I say all that in conjunction with, like, how can this change players going overseas? Like, Huge TV rights deal, which brings you to the next CBA, which brings you to higher salaries, which brings you down the road to where players don't need to go overseas, which possibly brings us to something like, a you know, and this is just my own pet, you know, project is like if, if women's basketball is something like a Champions League, you know, that could be amazing because it can't really happen now because the best teams have the same players, right? So it'd be like, the Seattle Storm against UMMC Katerinburg, and, it, and it's like, well, Sue Bird plays for both. Like, who would she play for in the Champions <laughs> League? But if you get the WNBA to be, like, its own league, you could start to, like, really grow the game in terms of the storytelling internationally, too. All right. Well, before we let you go, um, you come from a, a school that is a top 20 basketball school right now. Uh, right. <laughs> predictions for the upcoming NCAA tournament women's? Yeah, I mean, so I think the, what is the what is the the betting line is like South Carolina, like you got to if you bet a hundred dollars, you know, you, you can only win one hundred and seven or something if they win the <laughs> tournament. Um, so, but I wouldn't take that bet just because I, I like a value bet. So I'd probably go more with like Stanford, you know, maybe a Stanford. I might even because it's crazy the odds on UConn. I might put some money on a UConn. Um, I would love to see Indiana or Iowa in the final four. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, I, I believe South Carolina is going to win, but I don't want to just put my money there. It's just not fun enough. Um, Colorado's odds are, if I put a hundred dollars on Colorado and they won, I'd get $24,000 back. (laughs) And you'd be very happy. (laughs) I would, I would. One other question though, you mentioned South Carolina. How important are women's coaches like Dawn Staley and Becky Hammond to the sport and growing the sport? Oh, I mean, because so much of the focus of, of uh, women's basketball has been at the college level and that's where you have the infrastructure that makes the most sense to grow it, right? That you have like alumni, you have, there's a re there's a baked in reason to have connection. Um, you know, a school can be 150 years old, even if it's basketball program isn't. So the college game is where the game has really grown and having coaches that are dynamic and they stay at places gives you that long storytelling that is hard to get when you don't have the history of, let's say, the NBA on the WNBA side, although it's growing. So when you've got and it's great that Dawn is dynamic, that she's willing to say things. Same with obviously same with Gino, like over the years, she's basically said whatever he wanted at every turn. Um, so whenever coaches stay in places and they're willing to play the villain or, or 
you know, be willing to speak their mind. It, it does wonders for just everyday casual sports fans ability to like quickly connect to the storyline and have a reason to turn on a game. The book again is Hoop Muses, an insider's guide to pop culture and the women's game. Uh, you should get it. It's worth your time. Kate, thanks so much for the time and best of luck with the book. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. You know, Jeff, when you talk to her, you can see how much she cares about and has the passion for what she writes about. But you and I had talked about it, the way that the book is written from the content to the illustrations, it's presented in a way that people of all ages can really try to digest it. It's different. It and, is. And when you look at it, when, you, when, it came in, when it came in, I took I opened it up and I was like, what is this? Because it's different than any book that I had ever seen and anything that we had ever been sent before. And when you go through it, you start to see that this is a different way to get an audience. And it's incredibly interesting the way that it's done. And when we talked about the whole idea of kind of a Space Jam version of a book, it, it really is that kind of thing. And I can picture young people wanting to have, like, rip out the pages and put them on their wall. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid and I had, like, Sports Illustrated, you would rip out the pages of athletes and put them on the wall. And that's kind of what this book, I mean, she doesn't want people mutilating her book. <laughs> but, <laughs> people are sitting at home is, cutting it, out a page. <laughs> but, but, but maybe you do because it, it's just so interesting the way it's done. And I think it makes the athletes more interesting, which is, which is what they're already interesting people. It's just that we haven't covered them the way that they deserve to be covered. Well, and you talk about how they're interesting people. I found something she said at the end to be fascinating. With the new TV, TV deal coming up, they're going to have the opportunity to have storytelling along with games so that people can meet these players and, and relate with them. And I was telling you the other day, I know you don't want me to talk about my watching habits with my wife on the radio show. So you don't want me to do the snoring thing? No, you can okay. do that. I mean, we can have a recording of that. You can play it any time I talk. So, <laughs> but it was, so, it was, so instead, you just want to get straight to you Netflixing and chilling, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. That's what we're doing. So, but, we, but we started watching Full Swing on Netflix. And my wife I was, was so wishing you blushed right My now, wife, I'm not, though. So yeah, it's no you fun for you. Because you what I'm talking you. about. Again. <laughs> my wife is not the golf fan. But right. we're really into watching this. I could watch golf all day long long play whatever but the stories of the players you, you can get watch them. anything all day this long. is very right, true yeah. but i think what she said is important the women's sports need to have these stories told of their heroes so that you find out that they're more than just the players on the court they're people off the court you're learning about that with other sports and other athletes and i think for them to get that in a next tv deal would be critical for them to grow the game more i would only the only thing i would disagree with you is it doesn't have to be about heroes or hero, no. or, or hero worship, because I'm shocked when, when I hear about, like, the, the Netflix shows that are on. One of them is this Formula One show. Yep. As far as I I don't know anybody that's ever watched Formula One just to watch the cars go round and round and round and round. Oh, you're that guy. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> you can't just let somebody enjoy their sport. But you no, gotta but, get but, but, round and round and round right, and round. But my, my point is, is, is that... There is a, when I talk to my son and younger people, they're all watching that particular show, which is making the sport interesting to them. Yes. So, so the WNBA has to find ways to make to all of us it more interesting. We don't have to worship them. They don't have to be heroes. A lot of them are heroes. We have but to relate to them. Exactly. And that, and that's what some of these sports just need to do. And because there are so many other media outlets that you can do it now, 
it makes it easier to do it. And what, tennis has it too. They have a breakpoint series where it's the same type of thing. People who aren't necessarily into tennis are watching the story of the tennis players. I just think that happens to grow the game in the sport. And anytime that happens, you have a larger audience, larger TV deals, larger money for the players, everybody regardless. Can you imagine for tennis how great something like that would have been back in the 80s when it was John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg and Jimmy Connors? Well, you know, you say that, but right now the Full Swing Show is it's chronicling the split between Liv and the PGA. It is fascinating in terms of they are talking to these players in real time as they are making their decisions and you can see when they're full of it in the interviews like they they're they're splicing in here's the story that was out there while they're saying well i don't know what i'm gonna do today it's just really yeah, interesting I, how I, it's laid I, out to me i just don't find, i mean to me i take it all personally with regard to that particular sport and what they're doing and what those liv golfers are it's is that all of a sudden, everybody's just kind of... Mickelson took the brunt of that. Yes. Okay, because he couldn't well, he keep... he earned it. the brunt of that because exactly. of the way he, he, he spoke. Couldn't, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. But Mickelson is somebody I followed his whole career, and the second he said those things... You were done. I, I root against him. Now, now he's... And, and now I'm, I'm just so sick of the fact that LIV golf is just... It, it is getting watered down so that we're all forgetting... Who funds it? Well, and that's it. Now the focus is on how it's changing the PGA because the PGA will have new rules where they won't have yeah, cuts but the, but and the, they'll have larger fields. But the fields. problem we can discuss in, in future week if you want. But the problem with that whole thing is, is there's the LIV golfers are saying, "See, look at the advancements that we've caused," yep. and which is, you know what, the ends don't justify the means. I think that's a good place to leave it for this week. Jeff, any final thoughts, or do you want to leave you it on that You just told me that statement? was how it ends. Well, it, sometimes you have something you better you'd like to add. I think it's good, but you you want to say something more. It, just go fill out your bracket. Oh, well, that's profound. Thanks mm -hmm. so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week.